When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Mike Judge, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 45 of Music Is Not A Genre, MXG. Thank you so much for watching and listening. As always, please take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre. I'm getting ready to offer some huge Patreon-exclusive things starting in Season 6, and you have a whole lot to review from Seasons 1 through 5, and even before then, you get access to all the previous posts and, and perks and all that stuff, so so now is a perfect time to join and you get to join free for a week. Patreon.com slash music is not a genre. It's free for a week. If you don't like it, you cancel it. If you do like it, sign up for as little as five bucks a month and as much as $50,000 a month. I have a t-shirt about that. Uh, and, uh, and I would love you there. Basically, I would love you there. The people who are there are wonderful already. And then to grow the family would mean the world to me. And it would help support the work that I do both as a podcaster and as a musician. Please also go to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. If you're just listening, you get to see all of the videos for every single episode I do, including the podcast episodes and podcast is very visual I do like funny gags and stuff like that that you don't really get the flavor of in the audio. So youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. Subscribe there. Ding the bell so you get notified every time I upload a new video. And there are, are over 600 videos there. It's not just this podcast. Please also go to nickdematiocom slash contact. Sign up. Just fill out that form and you'll get my free newsletter a few times a month. And nickdematio.com is everything I do on there, all of Rex music, all of this podcast, my voiceovers, my acting, my graphic design, my blog, so many other things, uh, bio about me, and uh, the link to my shop where I'm selling shirts and mugs, uh, a few dozen of those, uh, several designs, many, many designs. You get uh, 20% off through the end of summer 2023 if you use the code SUMMER2320, SUMMER2320, that's 20% off. You get more if you sign up at Patreon. I've got a lot of pretty awesome designs there, the music-related and non-music-related. I like doodling. So please go to nickdematio.com and click the shop button on the menu. It'll get you to that shop. And finally, please listen to and support my band, Rec, R-E-C, at recarea.bandcamp.com. 
As always, thank you for bearing with me for those pitches at the beginning of every episode. It's it's important. It's it's really the lifeblood of this. I mean, your feedback and your listening and, and your involvement is is the spirit blood. Let's call it that. But the lifeblood, it's the money. It just is. And that's where Patreon and shirts and things like that come in. So now let's get to this episode. Again, I've never done this many episodes in one season. And that's significant because depending on how you're counting, this is the 200th or close to that. I don't know how to count because do podcasts count? Do they not count? I don't know. But it's close enough to 200 that next week, I'm going to do a special 200th uh, episode celebration uh, episode. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be, but it's going to be fun. Uh, I might, I, yeah, I won't even get any details because I don't know the details, but it, that makes this one sort of significant, sort of exciting. It's uh, episode 45, but it's way, it, yeah, close to 200. And the title of this episode is Metallica, the one true mega true metal band. So as always, I talk to you about my subtitle. Uh, and I'm going to explain in a little bit. I, there's, there's always a reason why I title things the way I do. And it's not just to grab attention, although that's part of it. But it's to get to a certain point with the episode, with the kind of, it's to, to draw a certain conclusion, uh, one of many, but maybe a, a salient one or the more salient one for each podcast. And the reason why I called this the one true mega true metal band is at the end of this episode or near the end, I'm going to tell you or explain to you or discuss with you why I believe that's true, that they are the only truly metal band that is truly mega successful. And we'll get there at the end of the episode. Uh, But a disclaimer, which is this. This is called Music is Not a Genre. Music really isn't a genre. So even though I'm going to be making a lot of references to subgenres, thrash and hardcore and, and, and you know, everything else, and distinctions and judgments about what is or isn't hard or metal, I, it doesn't really matter. I don't think any of that detracts from the music, from the quality of the, of the music, of anybody's music. And I will never care about genre enough not to like something because it doesn't live up to a certain genre standard. I, and there are fans who, people who call themselves fans of artists, who when those artists branch out and do something that to them doesn't fit directly into that genre category, they are no longer fans, or they're the people who say, I like them up until. And I'm sad for those people more than I'm sad for the artists, because the artists are doing what they want to do, and they're loving it. And Metallica is an example of this. So that's a disclaimer. Why am I doing this episode now? Reason number one, I saw them at MetLife Stadium over there in Jersey, right outside of New York where I live. And even though, I mean, there's like 80,000 people there or something, even though where I was sitting was way at the top, it's uh, not, the sound wasn't great. The show was amazing and they were amazing. It was short. There were 16 songs. Uh, It was about half of what The Cure did when I saw them, but excellent set list. And they vowed not to do a, to repeat a single song in any one city. So a friend of mine I went with saw them also the two days before that. And he saw 16 other songs. Uh, but man, great. And it was the first time I had seen them in over 30 years. Uh, in fact, when the Black Album came out, which of course we'll be discussing. And I love their choice of songs, etc., etc., And so you can tell, yes, I've been a fan for 35 years, probably. 
And I felt like this would be the perfect time to dedicate a full episode to them, to Metallica. They certainly deserve one. Uh, and I feel like I'm enough of a fan to, to do that. And I did my research. And also, as I mentioned recently, Pantheon, the network that I'm a part of, that this podcast is a part of, is now the official, official podcasters for Metallica. I think it's called the Metallica Report. Go look it up. I, I, I am kind of like amazed that I'm only a couple degrees of separation from Metallica now, which is pretty awesome. So that's also perfect timing. Why, uh, for those of you who are just listening, you got to bear with me here. I'm wearing a t-shirt that's not a Metallica t-shirt. Why? I don't own a Metallica t-shirt. Uh, but I'm wearing this for two re- three reasons. One, it refers to a band. It's fake band, but it's still a band. You can see the guitar. Two, it's black. Makes sense, right? And three... It says Mexican Funerals, the the name of the fake band. It's from this show uh, that Elijah Wood was in. And the third reason is Metallica and metal in general has a huge following in Latin America, Mexico and all of that. And as metal does in Japan, as metal does in Scandinavia, for some reason, I'm sure every country, but those are some big ones that include, you know, America included. And I just felt like that was, you know, the closest I can get to a Metallica t-shirt considering what I own. So let's get into the meat of the matter. Little history. And the, you know, so Metallica formed in 81, right? And at the time, you were seeing uh, splits, uh, division, uh, subdivisions of two genres in particular, punk and metal. They were both, depending on how you describe it or whatever, categorize, they were both in their third wave. So I'm going to give you a little history of where they were and what was happening. So they were splitting into subgenres in the late 70s and then especially into the 80s. And for punk, the fast, kind of hard in your face was hardcore. And for metal, it was speed metal or thrash. And so I'm going to go up to the third wave of each of those because beyond that, it becomes a different podcast, but it kind of gets, sets the stage and gives you context of where Metallica came from and their influences and stuff like that. And not coincidentally, those third waves and on the divisions would lead to each of their fourth waves, which would mark the biggest commercial successes in really in both of those genres, uh, you know, up until that point, at least. I mean, then, I mean, then again, the fifth wave of uh, punk might even have been more successful. So punk. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Waves, you have that first wave, the early, you know, mid-70s. Um, Ramones, Susie and the Banshees, Generation X, which was Billy Idol's band, The Cramps, The Voidoids, Television, Sex Pistols, The Clash, you know, a lot of them you probably already know, which led to the second wave, which was a little bit, a little bit harder, Corey, Misfits, Slits, uh, The Go-Go's, so you always already started to see kind of a post-punk creeping in, you had Joy Division or you had Two-Tone ska bands like The Specials, Madness, English Beat or Beat or whatever, and then you had a band called Discharge, which was, I believe, the earliest true hardcore punk band and was a huge influence in that kind of crossover to thrash uh, realm. And then the third wave is when you start, started to see the true schism in punk, surf punk, anarcho-punk, pop punk. There was something called Oi. Um, New Wave was an offshoot of punk in many ways, post-punk uh, like uh, the, that was called post-punk, like PIL, Public Image Limited, Killing Joke, uh, Nick Cave, and hardcore bands like The Germs, Black Flag, Bad Brains, Dead Kennedys, Minor Threat, Circle Jerks. Husker uh, Du was, was a little hardcore early on. Of course, they branched out to more melodic things. Um, uh, but the band that is said to most connect uh, hardcore with thrash metal, along with Discharge, is Suicidal Tendencies. They were considered a huge influence on on thrash metal. So let's get to metal. Metal waves, the first wave would be uh, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin. Uh, I'm talking about Led Zeppelin later in a very significant way. So, you you know, hold your applause or hold your criticism. Uh, I'll get there as far as whether or not you think they're metal. Deep Purple. Uh, uh, and other than, of course, the proto metal like Cream and Iron Butterfly and Steppenwolf, uh, the song Helter Skelter, the Kink, some of the Kinks, some of the Who, things like that. But really, that was like Sabbath, Zeppelin, Deep Purple. The second wave would be bands like Scorpions and ACDC. I talk about them later too. So again, hold your hold your you know discernment until later. But think about it. Get ready because I want to hear it. Uh, Rainbow with Ronnie James Dio, Thin Lizzy, uh, Judas Priest, uh, Motorhead. 
which to me straddle kind of the second and third waves. And they also straddle metal and punk. They had, they had a lot of hardcore elements and also had a lot of, you know, thrash elements to them. Uh, that third wave, Iron Maiden, Def Leppard, before they, you know, were super popular. Dio, the band, and the man. Uh, Van Halen, back in their early days. Uh, Rat, Quiet Riot, which was my favorite at the time. Uh, I, I, that was probably, the, I want to say that was the first metal album I bought, although Ozzy, Blizzard of Oz might have been the first one. So it's one of those two. Uh, Motley Crue, early Motley Crue. And, uh, and the big four of thrash metal are part of this third wave. And they are Megadeth, Anthrax, Slayer, and Metallica. And th- they, and Metallica being the biggest one, redefined not just what metal could be, which a lot of bands were doing then in different ways, but they redefined how hard music had to be to be considered metal. And that's significant, especially when it, it refers back to my subtitle and back to the conclusions that I'm drawing at the end of this episode. How hard does music have to be to be considered metal? That shifted from the 60s through at least the 80s. I think that's where the the peak of hardness came and everything after that kind of matched that in different ways. I mean, you could say death metal went, you know, you know, even deeper, but that's more stylistic than hardness, you know. But again, I want to hear from you. I was listening to, uh, I'm sorry, I was talking to that friend of mine I went to uh, the concert with, and he said uh, along these lines, that bands that were once considered metal prior to Metallica, just they just no longer hold up as metal. And what's funny is we were listening to Metallica on the way home from a gig this past weekend, and it ended. And then the streaming service did say, you know, did the thing where oh, you have nothing coming up, so we'll suggest something. And it was suggesting things that you could see were related, but there might have been one of those songs that was as hard as Metallica, and and that's kind of where he came up with that idea. So let's get into Metallica. Their early years uh, formed in San, in uh, in Los Angeles before they eventually relocated to San Francisco uh, in, in 1981 because Lars Ulrich, the Ferner, um, uh, put an ad out. And just just the way you two started, a drummer, you know, said, I need I need a singer. And the singer came and then, of course, the guitarist came and all that. So Hetfield answered that ad with another guy who didn't work out. Then uh, Dave Mustaine answered that ad and Ron McGovney, who was their first bass player, answered that ad. So that was their lineup early on with which they did a series of demos in 1982 and 83. In early 83, uh, by then, Ron Montgomery had left and Cliff Burton had joined and he'd be significant. Uh, those demos, the the yeah, the kind of EP demos, are the only recordings, uh, Metallica recordings, that have Mustaine on them, though he would continue to get writing credits through like the first two albums. But we'll get into, you know, where he went. And if you're a Metallica fan, you already know this history. So it's not like I'm going to give you, I'm not going to give you a ton of detail because you either know it. And if you don't, you can look it up. But I want to allude to it. Uh, So Cliff Burton replaces McGovney. And then when they kick uh, Mustaine out for 
uh, alcohol and drug related issues, behavioral issues, whatever might've been also creative differences, who knows, or it might've been too many chefs in the kitchen because clearly he goes on to form Megadeth and make some absolutely amazing music on his own. So maybe there were just too many great ideas and too, you know, a couple, one too many leaders in the band. I'm sure there were plenty of reasons, but uh, that happened in 1983. Kirk Hammett replaces him and uh, they would record the their first three full albums with the lineup of Hetfield, Ulrich, uh, Hammett, and Burton. And then in 1986, after their third album comes out, uh, Cliff Burton dies in a bus accident. They discuss it and, and say uh, he would want us to continue. And I believe that's true. But I also believe it's kind of amazing when you read their history, they were damn successful out of the gate. I mean, once they started passing around demos, they were called up uh, fairly early on to open for uh, metal bands, particularly, what is it, N-W-O-B-H-M, New Wave of British Heavy Metal bands, particularly those bands, they would be an opening act for really early on in their career. So at this point in 86, they'd already had such a level of success that it was, to me, kind of a foregone conclusion that why wouldn't they continue, especially when you consider all the stuff that came after. So uh, Jason Newstead replaced um, the departed Cliff Burton, and that's who they recorded all of their uh, 90s albums with. So, uh, you know, my friend, again, Rich, Rich Berta, he was a guest on this uh, uh, podcast. He's got a band, That New Life. And he's a huge Metallica fan. We went to the concert and he made the point that there's a, a collection of Metallica albums there, uh, not counting the first one, but I think two, three, four and five that kind of have the same uh, sequence structure or at least two, three and four, I guess, where it's the second song is the is the title track and the first song hits in a certain way and there's an instrumental at a certain point. And I don't know the structure that well, but I, I'm curious about your opinion of that. And, and also that their recent concerts have the same structure where they're kind of plugging in we need uh, an old tune here, a new tune here. We need one from, I don't know, Load here. We need one from the Black Album here and, and an instrumental here or whatever. And I, I mean, I think it's great. If you find a flow that works, it makes sense to structure things that way, whether it's live or on an album. So the next era comes. And let me talk a little bit about why I'm a fan of Metallica. There are three reasons other than I like their music. The three reasons. I had a roommate in college who was an absolutely huge Metallica fan. Uh, I believe his name was Paul. And he'd have the posters and the the shirts, you know, the, those kind of like long sleeve tees where the center of it is white with the, with the logo and the sleeves are black. You know, they were pretty ubiquitous, you know. And he turned me on to Metallica in their thrash years. And it was through him that I heard the first Metallica songs, I'm pretty sure. Uh, although there was a dude in high school who was a huge uh, metal fan. He liked the band Kicks and Iron Maiden. And I used to draw uh, T-shirts in math class. He would sit in front of me and I would draw, you know, pencil renderings of like Iron Maiden t-shirts and stuff like that. Um, pretty pretty decent too, actually. And uh, he may have played me some. I don't re- fully recall that. The second reason I am a Metallica fan is the Black Album. You know, uh, Metallica, whatever you want to call it, 
it made it personal for me. It was, oh, I like the thrash, but it's not kind of central to my music experience. But now they're doing thrash plus and they're adding so many other things to it. And they're they're you know, that's pretty much what the Black Album did was it broke them. Uh, not just in that community, but it made them kind of cross over, you know, to the pop world and to the world in general. And then the third reason I'm a Metallica fan is the reason I'm a fan of a lot of bands, and that is their longevity, their consistency, and through that, their willingness to always explore more and different and and release new material and not just rest on their old material or continually rehash their old sound. Uh, so, you know, that's just that I respect bands who are able to do that, uh, which, of course, throughout these 40 plus years, I guess, 42 years, uh, 40 years of recorded material uh, or albums, let's say uh, huge success worldwide. I don't know if there's anybody who knows music who if you ma- mention their name, they wouldn't know who they were. They might not have heard a song right now, but yeah, uh, every album since the Black Album has hit number one. And all uh, of their 11 main albums are multi-platinum, uh, except the new one, which is it's hasn't been out long enough. I'm sure it'll reach multi-platinum. Which, by the way, if you follow my podcast, you know that in one of, one of my um, continuum episodes, I did review 72 seasons. I'm going to do another review and uh, sort of a revisitation because I want to complete this you know episode with all of their albums. Uh, And so you have their 90s success and ubiquity and they're around and they, you know, we're going to go over the discography in a few minutes. So I'll get to which albums were out then, et cetera, et cetera. And ending that decade is when Lars Ulrich sued for, you know, sued Napster, you know, because they found there were bootlegs of their music. And I think in a couple of cases before they were even officially released, and it took about till 2003, I believe, but they won and Napster was shut down and et cetera, et cetera. And here's, here's my, I've talked about this in previous episodes and, and I think I have a more kind of uh, uh, complete view of how I felt, how I feel, et cetera, about it. And, and that's this. At the time, I couldn't stand any of this, you know. I was a dude in, dude in my 20s who just wanted to find as much music as possible I was on. Oh, I didn't actually use Napster, but I used LimeWire and FrostWire and all that stuff and found as many uh, bootlegs as, as I could in MP3s. And I couldn't understand why these huge successful rich dudes, Ulrich in particular, were trying to squeeze every penny out of fans and all they were doing was showing their love for music, which is how I felt at the time. And that's that kind of stink uh, would hang over them for me for years, really. But uh, in light of evolution and, and prescience and the things that are happening right now, I'm kind of of two minds. And, uh, you know, and that is this. One is, like others, he saw the future of hugely lost revenue for all musicians due to, uh, you know, pirate, piracy and streaming and all that stuff. And even though I am not a hard and fast, you come to me and you tell me, I uh, I heard your new rec album or a rec album and I absolutely loved it. Oh, where'd you hear it? Oh, I got a copy, you know, and such and such for free. I don't care. I really don't. I mean, 
if I'm going to, you know, make a ton of money, it's not going to be because a few people, you know, pirated the music. It's because the companies that are running it are, are not being fair to the artists. But that, that said, he knew it was coming. Ulrich knew it was coming. And, you know, the, the record companies kind of knew what was coming, but uh, didn't work fast enough. And yeah, they caught up and we'll talk about that in a second. But that's one way that I've changed my view on that. And the second is, he wasn't just fighting for Metallica. He was fighting for all musicians. And the reason the reason I say that now is because there are a lot of people who are criticizing uh, actors uh, for being vocal about the writer's strike and the strike in general and complaining about they're not getting streaming revenue, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, sure, they probably want that money too, but they're also fighting for all of the lesser known people who work in that industry who not just want that money but need it way more than they do so and and if you have that platform and you're you're known why not speak out and try to move the ball forward like that so that's i think that's how different i feel about what they were doing at the time and then like a a third thought which is even though metallica won and they shut down napster which by the way today's napster isn't really Napster. Uh, Rhapsody bought the rights to the name and eventually in 2016 renamed Rhapsody Napster, so whatever. But even though they won, the record labels caught up, uh, especially upstart streaming companies or big streaming companies like Apple, Spotify, all the ones we know, they, they figured out what to do, which is they just found a way to legitimize the theft. You know, they... They set revenues at such a low bar and conditioned musicians to just expect that that's all you're getting and you should feel good about it. Now we're fighting back and hopefully there'll be some changes, but it was sort of a Pyrrhic victory, I guess you could call it, you know, and hopefully, you know, things, things move at a glacial pace sometimes and hopefully they will change. So then uh, the 2000s hit uh, and Newstead leaves. Bob Rock fills in on bass for St. Anger, which we'll talk about later. Robert Trujillo is the bass player now and the longest serving bass player. He's been with them for 20 years, I believe. Uh, in 04, shortly after he joined, they released their uh, doc, Some Kind of Monster, which you know shows them in group therapy. It's interesting because they talk about Anger. Their their album, St. Anger, had just come out. And uh, the movie Anger Management was out the year before with Jack Nicholson. It was really in in and around the world, uh, in the zeitgeist then. Uh, and yes, I'll keep using that word. I enjoy it. Uh, Hatfield talked about his alcoholism and his rehab. And, and, and you really saw a lot of the details of group therapy. And although some people, like Dave Mustaine, say things were skewed, it was pretty bold and pretty metal of them to share all of this dirt, you know, to air their laundry, you know, in front of people and to show how vital uh, communication is, especially in a controlled setting with the professional mediating when you're having issues within a band or with a person in a band. Uh, you know, it's important to have somebody there to help to guide things so that it doesn't, you know, fly out of control. Which was interesting to me a few years later, I would end up in uh, group therapy, a couple of sessions with the film company that I was with because we were having internal issues and some of us were having personal issues. I won't name who. Oh, it was me. Yeah. And it might have been someone else too. Uh, that ended differently. But it, but it just, 
you know, it's a it's a show, it's a movie, it's a doc worth revisiting and checking out. Also to just see what they look like 20, 20 years ago. Uh, just to complete this mini history, they were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2009, if that matters to anybody. Uh, 2013, they did a concert called Freeze Em All in Antarctica, which made them the first band in history to play on all seven continents. And that's all I'm giving you history-wise. Uh, go ahead and look up the rest. Uh, there's a lot that I skipped because it, it is what it is and you, you know what I do. And that means I'm going to get to the discography, which starts as far as complete albums go with Kill 'Em All in 1983. I think the original title was supposed to be like Metal Up Your Ass or something like that. Record company didn't like it, etc. Other reasons. Uh, I mean, I love this title anyway. Uh, Out of the Gate, it was just an insanely great and strong debut. And from the beginning, we really need to pay attention to and realize the level of technical achievement it takes to play music like this, like that accurately and that fast and that tight. It's not like one guy was playing fast and the other guy was a little, I'll be, no, I mean, just super, super tight. Uh, There was still quite a bit of melodicism in Hetfield's voice, which came from that, you know, kind of British heavy metal influence. Uh, And it would be ironed out to kind of his proto-screamo vocals that he continued with for the most part for several albums after that. And the melodicism wouldn't return uh, in large form until And Justice for All, and then, of course, the Black Album and beyond. Uh, they were ultra hard out of the gate, but you could still hear in their kind of chord structure and in a certain way it was the the the, the melodies came out and the, and the production, even the lyrics, that there was a huge still influence of that new wave of British heavy metal, uh, you know, sound. And still even some of that earlier metal kind of hard blues sound where the, uh, the, uh, I want to say chord, but it's not scale where they, where Hammett was using the pentatonic scale for a lot of his solos for, I would say even most of his solos, uh, which he would revisit quite often, but metal, especially metal of the eighties and beyond is known for the harder metal is known for kind of eschewing the pentatonic scale, the blues scale, and going more chromatic. And Hammett certainly leaned more towards chromatic. It's sort of the way when you think of like uh, Eddie Van Halen's solos. It, it almost leans more classical than it does blues. And you can really, really hear the hardcore punk connection immediately on Kill 'Em All, uh, which, by the way, I had to look this up. Double kick drums, double bass, whatever you want to call it. They've always like, I play drums well enough to maybe maybe get through an entire song. Maybe not. Uh, but I don't know that I will ever be able to do a double bass. I don't think I want to anyway, but anyone who can and do it that well has always blown me away. And what's interesting is it didn't start with metal. It started with uh, what what we know anyway is jazz drummer, uh, Louis Belson, back in uh, the late 30s and the 40s, sketched it out and then rigged it up and worked it out. And that's where it began. So, you you know, you never know. There's a connection you wouldn't expect to metal, right? So tracks on this album, Hit the Lights, Four Horsemen, Motor Breath, Jump in the Fire, uh, Anesthesia, Pulling Teeth, which is an instrumental, Whiplash, uh, God, Phantom Lord, No Remorse, Seek and Destroy, Metal Militia. My favorites, Hit the Lights, uh, Yes, 
uh, I prefer side two, actually, Phantom Lord, No Remorse, uh, and Metal Militia, but my two absolute favorites, Whiplash and Seek and Destroy. And Seek and Destroy was, I believe, the first or second Metallica song I ever heard as well. So kind of significant for me. Following year in 1984, they released Ride the Lightning, they were already starting to branch out from pure thrash and at the same time kind of codifying thrash more. So kind of an interesting dichotomy there. Uh, like uh, like with uh, Escape, but, uh, you know, the song on Ride the Lightning, you can hear that's not thrash. But at the same time, the music was actually harder than their first album. And Hetfield is close to his signature vocal sound here. He's, he's almost found it. And, and you can certainly tell who it is, but he's not 100% there yet. I love hearing development. I absolutely love it. I just posted uh, music from an old band of uh, mine, Ape Cafe, and to hear the development of the band and my vocals and, and the songwriting from, uh, from the first album to the third album, it's just fascinating. And I listen for that in every band that I listen to. Uh, some, uh, so track listing, Fight Fire with Fire, Ride the Lightning. And this is where that structure comes in that my friend Rich talked about where the, you know, it's that hard out of the gate song. And then the second song is the title, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Fade to Black, Trapped Under Ice, Escape, Creeping Death, The Call of Tulu, which they played live uh, at the, at the show I saw and was pretty amazing. My favorites are Ride the Lightning, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And again, I prefer side two on this album, Trapped Under Ice, Escape, Creeping Death. And then, yeah, the instrumentals, great. Okay, so 1986, they release Master of Puppets. And to me, a couple things. This is the first album that sounds totally like the Metallica that we know, I believe. And it's their first great album. The first two albums were amazing, but this is their first, like, you got to put this on best of lists, et cetera, et cetera, Master of Puppets. Uh, Battery, to me, was their best opening song to date. Uh, which you can tell they were just getting tighter and better at songwriting and closer to the sound that they wanted. Uh, the title track, Master of Puppets, is the first proof to maybe themselves, but certainly the world, that they'd be more than just a great metal band, that they could make the charts. It was their first successful single. Uh, and here's what's interesting. This album, again, shows more diversity than you might think. There's a ton of thrash on there, but it's not just thrash. And that's significant because they would end up shifting their fan base when the Black Album came out. And a lot of the purists who only liked what they considered the pure thrash sound like to say that they went soft, etc. And A, they didn't. And B, who cares if they did? But C, there was already stuff like that on albums before the Black Album. So they just chose to accept it in a different way or tune it out. I don't know. If you're one of those people, I want to know why. Uh, anyway, so, uh, we have welcome, uh, sorry, we have battery master of puppets, the thing that should not be welcome home sanitarium, uh, disposable heroes, leper Messiah, Orion, the instrumental damage Inc. I like this entire album this time around. I like the side one a little better than side two. And I'm talking at an era where there are actual sides. 
but I love Battery and Master of Puppets, of course, and The Thing That Should Not Be and Welcome Home Sanitarium, which is that more diverse sound. And I love Damage Inc. to the last song. Uh, quick note, after 86, they released an EP in 87 called the 598 EP, Garage Days Re-Revisited, which was their first collection of cover tunes. So it was before Garage Inc., uh, a good decade before but it was included on that as a second disc, I think, or third disc. There were quite a few songs on that that were uh, not new. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get there. This is also when uh, Newstead comes on and continues, of course. Uh, 1988 and Justice for All, which of, which I believe is their great greatest 80s album and is certainly a top five, uh, top maybe top three for me Metallica-wise. Uh, it is a classic album and should be considered that from any perspective in any genre. It's also the first album of theirs I heard all the way through, and it's a double album. It's also, I think, the most progressive of their albums, at least in terms of their you know, first, I don't know, 30 years, let's say. Uh, they brought in elements of progressive rock that subsequent metal would use like crazy, like bands like Tool, you know. And, and so again, yes, thrash, but thrash, when you consider it as a kind of a crossover sister to hardcore should be kind of simpler. And they were like, nope, we're going to, we're going to mess this up and bring in ideas that are going to complexify everything. And it shows their willingness again to broaden their sonic palette and not just stick with the things they were doing. They're too curious and too much in love with kind, different kinds of music to do that as they would be throughout their careers. Uh, these are the, the tracks, Blackened and Justice for All. Again, for the third time, the second song is the title track. I, the Beholder, won the shortest straw. Love how he says, straw. Harvester of Sorrows, The Freight Ends of Sanity, uh, which I'll make a quick note of. Uh, they reference a song, an old folk, Russian folk song called the song of the Volga Boatman. It's a, oh, we, oh, oh, yo, which pops up in a lot of songs. Uh, I didn't remember that he did that. To Live Is To Die, Dyer's Eve. Again, favorites every song, really, but especially Blackened and Justice For All, I, the Beholder, One and The Shortest Straw. And I think, I want to say this is true, that One was the first Metallica song I actually ever heard. Because I probably, Paul was probably like, I know you're not a huge, you know, you don't know Metallica that well. You may know some metal, but you're not a huge metal dude. So let me play you this one because it's metal, but it's crossover. It's just the, I don't know. I could be misremembering that. Then you get to the first CD of theirs I bought, and I'm going to pick it up gingerly. So those of you just listening, I'm holding a pitch black thing with a snake on it, whatever. Metallica is the name of the album, but it's also known as the Black Album. And I would not have become a lifelong fan if not for that album. Uh, and like I said, it's the only other time I saw them live. The Cult opened, and this was out back in Philly when I was still living in that area. And I know this album divides people, but I have a note here that says mostly assholes. And 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 here's the thing. If, if it's not your taste, if all you wanted was the hardest of the hard and to stay true to your origins and to not find ways uh, to evolve that still create amazing music, that's fine. That's your personal taste. 
But then I have to again say, like I've said for other artists, don't call yourself a Metallica fan. Would they think that you're a hardcore fan if you only like four of their albums? I mean, they would probably be appreciative because any musician's like, oh, if you like this, you don't like this, that's cool. I'm glad you like something. But you're not a hardcore fan. You're a purist. And I'm not a fan of purists. Um, Yeah, only people who are unwilling to change and evolve with the band could call this album anything but hard. It's an extremely hard album. You know, it, it, it certainly changes their sound, but it proved to many people that true metal, and I'm going to go back to this definition, but not hair metal, which, yeah, some great songs and great bands, but there's a that's a different flavor of metal. It's glam metal, it's hard rock metal, whatever you want to call, but like heavy, heavy, heavy metal that should turn off the charts. This album proved that it could be accessible, it could be pop, it could be popular, it could be commercial, which I guess popular, and it could still stay true to its form. And yeah, Def Leppard and Quiet Riot kind of kept the hardness, you know, for quite a while. Uh, I mean, Quiet Riot didn't last very long, but, you, you know, and were also commercially successful. So apologies to them. But this one takes the cake as far as I'm concerned. And this and Metallica showed that they were one of just a really few 80s metal bands to have actual success in the 90s. A lot of them just couldn't make that change. When you think of a band like Alice in Chains, who started as sort of a hair metal, glam metal band, made that shift to a harder sound that lumped them in with the grunge movement, that was the kind of change that needed to happen with a lot of these, you know, bands. Uh, but And some of them had success in the 90s. Like there was, I think, a Queensryche hit and stuff like that. But most of them, they just, they could sustain it live. They could sustain it in Europe and other places, again, because they're less persnickety than Americans are. But they couldn't sustain it here. Metallica could and did. So Enter Sandman, a huge fave. They closed with that at the concert I saw, and I have a video of it, and it was amazing, and I'm so glad I was there because I'm sure I also saw them do that back in, you know, 91 or 92 or whenever I saw them. Sad But True, another favorite. Holier Than Thou, The Unforgiven, they also played live, um, and I loved that, and it's one of my faves. Wherever I May Roam, excellent. Don't Tread On Me, very cool. They quote the the West Side Story song, America. So again, kind of quoting another song, which is nice. Through the Never, Nothing Else Matters. Yeah, of course, that's going to be a favorite. Of Wolf and Man, The God That Failed is a favorite. My Friend of Misery is a favorite. The Struggle Within is a favorite. And they were a huge influence on me uh, at the time. Uh, especially Nothing Else Matters, because it it really led towards the shift that I would make in my music that would take a few years, but and, and grunge helped it along. But that, is there a way to be hard and open at the same time and not, you know, too um, tight-assed and restrictive? And The Struggle Within is just a kick-ass ender to a kick-ass album. Which brings me to the next CD that I own and their next album. It took them five years to get there. And it's, a, it's the album called Load. Uh, pretty standard CD packaging, but there's some great uh, photos in here, things to look at. Uh, I'm just showing the, the people who are viewers. 
Uh, I'm not putting these back on the diorama because I know that I'm going to knock everything down. So I'm just going to put them over here. Uh, you know, common after a huge successful album to take a longer break, partly because you're on tour for it and you're making a lot of money for it. And partly because you maybe need to regroup and say, oh, hold on, how the hell are we going to follow that up? You know, uh, Lode saw them further branching away from thrash and further branching away from even a harder sound. In fact, there is no real thrash on Lode, as far as I'm concerned. You've got elements of hard rock and southern rock and blues and country even. Now, I remember liking it because the wait was so long and I had loved the Black Album so much that I just desperately wanted new Metallica music. But like many people, I was surprised at the direction they took. Uh, I respect it a lot now. I don't think I was disappointed, but it certainly didn't grip me the way that the Black Album did. But honestly, very strong album. And there's some really good songs on here and it shows they were listening to what was going on at the time and also listening to their own hearts and saying I want to go in other directions again and they did tracks are ain't my bitch 2 by 4 the house jack built until it sleeps is a favorite of mine king nothing is a favorite for sure uh hero of the day yes bleeding me cure poor twisted me wasting my hate uh mama said which to me is their first metal ballad. I know there were some like that on others, like One and Nothing Else Matters and all of those. But in the way that this one is produced, this reminds me more of the kind of quintessential 80s metal ballads, Mama said. Thorn Within, another favorite. And then we have Ronnie and the Outlaw Torn. And that brings me to the following year, 97, where they did Reload. They had all this extra material, similar to the way... Uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers recently released their album, Return of the Dream Canteen, which was material left over from the album they had just released. And also similar to the way that, that it was a little more eclectic and maybe not as strong an album as the one that came before. But interesting and worth listening to, and you understand why they wanted to do it, have many worthy songs, uh, and why hold back music you know, when you have it release it, put it out there, whatever you've got, you know, yes, it's more expansive than the first album and it wasn't as well received, but that's partly because I think load shocked people that it was, they weren't just going to retread all the stuff that they had done before. Again, there's no real thrash on here. Uh, as a total listening experience now in hindsight, I, I kind of liked it better than load because I felt like they were more assured in their direction. They were like, all right, we're, we're changing here a little bit. We're going to stick with it and we're going to really knock it out. Uh, and they were less hesitant, I want to say, if you could use that word. At the same time, I don't have that CD. So I feel like at the time, Load hit me in a way where I was like, I don't need to reload. And yeah, it's a joke. Uh, tracks, my favorites, Fuel, The Memory Remains, which features Marianne Faithful. Uh, the third is Devil's Dance, The Unforgiven 2. Better Than You is a favorite. Slither is a favorite. Carpe Diem, baby. I just like the title. Bad Seed. I like the title. Where the Wild Things Are. Great song. Great book. Prince Charming. Low Man's Lyric. I like the sound of this. Uh, Low Man's Lyric. Just an interesting sound. Uh, Attitude. And Fixer. Three X's. Great closer. Absolutely love it. And that brings me to 98, which is Garage Inc., and I'm including this because it was significant enough. It's not an Originals album, but it's their only official album of covers. 
And it's fairly damn diverse. You know, it leans heavily toward new wave of British heavy metal, but it also has other metal and it also has non-metal in there. And to me, it was sort of a, a needed break for them. They were searching for what they wanted to do next, the sounds they wanted to incorporate. So they thought, let's revisit where we come from and some other things that we like to see where that takes us, I think. And also they love the songs. They wanted to do them justice. And I think it gave them a way to reinvigorate, you know, and to, again, like I said, get back to their roots. It was cool. They also included that 598 EP and some other early bonus material that, that made it a pretty complete album. I only recently heard it, to be honest. I didn't hear it then other than uh, the Thin Lizzy. My favorite uh, tracks from this album are uh, Sabra Kadabra, Turn the Page, Nice Choice, Bob Seeger, Die, Die, My Darling, Merciful Fate, Astronomy, and Whiskey in the Jar, which is a traditional Irish song, but it's, it was inspired by the Thin Lizzy version, which I knew at the time uh, for whatever reason. A friend of mine, actually from Ape Cafe, huge Thin Lizzy fan. And St. Anger is the next CD I would get, and their next album it was this six years after their uh, album of original material, 97's Reload. I love the packaging for this. They went with the paper packaging, you know, save plastic and all that stuff. But I just like the, you know, illustrations and all of that. And here's the thing. Screw you guys, right? I mean, people re- were really disappointed in this album and they disliked it. And it was for one reason, the production. But here's the thing. Could you, you know, no production is perfect, first of all. There's some production that is so amazing that it's worth noting and should win an award. But short of that, no production is perfect. None. No production values are perfect. And I know that because I'm constantly producing music and I'm judging my own music against other music. And there are times where I listen to other music that I really like and I'm like, ooh, you know what? I realize that I might want to lift the, the bass there or the drums or something like that. And this is, I'm talking super successful music, not just my own music. And yes, I get that the way this was produced was extremely different from any of their other albums. But that was by design. It wasn't by accident. So if you go, if you judge it by their intention, which was to sound like a garage band, they achieved it in spades. And I think that is important to note. I think it's important to note that people, including some musicians I know, make way too much of production values. You're not going to get it perfect either. Get the song out there in a way that's listenable and people will understand and they'll get it. You know, and, and let them figure it out. But, you know, do justice to it, of course. Honestly, I liked this album. It holds up way better than people give it credit for. There are some great songs on it. I liked it better than Load. I liked it better than Reload. They sound more re-energized than they had since the Black Album. It's the first time Thrash returned in their repertoire in years. It's the first return of some of their progressive stuff in years, in even more years. I think it's a leap forward lyrically. This was when Hapfield was really exploring his issues and stuff like that. And it is a top five and possibly top three Metallica album for me. And that may be the big statement here in this podcast. I'm not only not, you know, saying that St. Anger was a disappointment. I'm saying it's one of my favorites, including the songs Frantic, St. Anger. There it is again. The second song is the title track. Some Kind of Monster, which they lend that title to the doc. Dirty Window. Those are some favorites. Next was Invisible Kid. 
I wonder if a friend of mine whose first band name, he's changed it many times since then, was Invisible Kid. Did he get his name from this song? I wonder, because it's about when he started with that name. So I think he might have. My World, Shoot Me Again, Sweet Amber, The Unnamed Feeling, Purify is another favorite, All Within My Hands. Uh, Yeah, so the first side, there's no sides anymore, but that first part of it is really my favorite area. Which then, five years later, here's the last CD of theirs I own because I stopped buying CDs shortly after this. One of my favorite packagings just of all time for any band, that kind of like slowly uh, diminishing coffin and all that. And, and, and again, like a lot of paper here and you open it up. It's yeah, it's beautiful packaging and a kind of a cool picture of them. A death magnetic in 2008 for many people, this is a return to form. And I understand that it immediately grabs you. It has those long progressive songs with many parts uh, if I feel to it feels to me like they were looking backward and trying to find some of the stuff that they did really well and reincorporate that into what they're doing at the time, which might have been in part compelled by St. Anger falling flat for some critics. And it might have been in part for, well, we've done all the exploring we want to do at the moment. Let's just get back to basics. Uh, this was during the compression wars, the loudness wars. When who could compress, you know, songs the most to create the loudest songs and then other songs that weren't as compressed wouldn't sound as present, but it was overdone to the point of losing a lot of nuance and things like that. And even though we've backtracked some from that, uh, there are plenty of songs I released where I did not want to compress it like crazy. And it they do sound lower than other songs. And that to me is, might be in part because I just don't have the same equipment, but I think it's partly because we're still feeling the effects of the compression wars, the loudness wars. Uh, Songs. Uh, Again, I love the opening of this album. That was just your life. The end of the line, broken, beaten, scarred, and the day that never comes are some favorites. Then all nightmare long. Cyanide is another favorite. The unforgiven three, which is better than the unforgiven two, but not as good as the unforgiven. The Judas Kiss, uh, Suicide and Redemption instrumental. Oh, I love that. And My Apocalypse, I also enjoyed it uh, quite quite a bit. It was an excellent ender. I really did like this album. I really did. This probably would round out. I, I want to say it might round out a top five. I guess they take a break uh, and say, you've got the Black Album. You've got Injustice for All. You've got uh, St. Anger and Screw You Guys. Uh, you might want to say... Death Magnetic is somewhere in that mix, perhaps Master of Puppets, but I, I'm not sure for my personal whatever. And then we'll get to the new album. So yeah, I think it's possible that uh, Death Magnetic might fall into my top five for them. Uh, then notably, uh, you have uh, Things in the Interim after 2008. They did an album with Lou Reed called Lulu. And then they did an EP called Beyond Magnetic. Uh, with other songs, I guess, uh, 2011. And those are notable releases. Explore them. I listened to them a little bit. But their actual longest break between original albums came between Death Magnetic and Hardwired to Self-Destruct 2008 to 2016. And it's another double album, I guess you can call it. But honestly, who even knows what a double album is at this point? Uh, I think people are sort of getting back to that in some ways. But, you know everything streaming does it even matter i remember listening to this and thinking 
damn, it's great that these guys who have been around for so long can thrash as hard as this. But I didn't fully enjoy the listening experience. I love, I love the thrash. I love the long songs. I love the progressiveness. I love that they're not caring whether they're hitting the charts or not. I mean, they might care, but they're caring more, let's say, about the music they're creating than anything else. And that is exciting to me because I think any band who's been around that long deserves to be there and should be there personally and should be there all the time. But to just get rid of those career pressures, I think is great. But again, I don't think I'd put this in a top five, even though it was a, it's a very strong album. Hardwired is a favorite. Atlas Rise, Now That We're Dead, Moth Into Flame, Dream No More is a favorite, Halo on Fire, Going to Disc 2, maybe that's why it's a double album, couldn't fit all in one disc, Confusion is a favorite, Man Unkind, Here Comes Revenge, Am I Savage is a favorite, Murder One, and Spit Out the Bone, favorite, uh, definitely, which brings me to the final album they've released thus far, just recently, 72 Seasons, which... uh, signifies the first 18 years of a person's life when you're trying to figure out who you are. So that was kind of a cool, I like that title. I really like this album. I would say even that I like it better than Hardwired to Self-Destruct. To me, it is the most assured, uh, like assuredly like their oldest stuff than anything else they've done. And I would even say overall has better songs than Hardwired to Self-Destruct. I, I wanted a bit more diversity. I was sort of looking for that inaugural, inaugural album that a lot of bands have been doing lately where they incorporate all their stuff into what they're doing. And they were pretty much straight ahead, just, you know, thrash and a few slower things, but didn't revisit uh, a lot of the other eras that they were in. But that's fine. You know, it, it's still, it's kind of a, a great album. And my friend Rich said, He's not, it's not a super favorite of his, but he tends to prefer older stuff from all of the bands he likes. And yet he said, if it had come out 30 years ago, it would have been an epic release, you know, and I get that. And it kind of sucks that that's the way uh, a career goes. But at the same time, you know, uh, out of context or objectively, if you can hear it and say this is a great album, then something's been done, you know. Some favorite, uh, well, anyway, 72 Seasons is a favorite. Shadows Follow, Screaming Suicide is a favorite, Sleepwalk My Life Away, and You Must Burn Her Favorites. Lux Eterna was not a favorite, and then I heard it live, and it kicked ass live. So that helped me understand the song better. Crown of Barbed Wire, Chasing Light is a favorite. If Darkness Had a Sun, Too Far Gone might be my favorite song in the whole album. Room of Mirrors, and then Inamorata is epic. It's huge, long. It's to me like the Foo Fighters song, The Teacher, from from their most recent album, But Here We Are, with, you know, it's not just progressive and has different sections and changes, but it takes you through a journey and has that epic feel. That's the discography. And so now to some conclusions before we get to the featured song. First, they uh, have never been just a metal band. They've been primarily metal but they've been willing to cross uh, genres here and there to a point. They never go so far as to try to do like an electronic album or whatever. And that's fine. Others have done that, but uh, they, they aren't just so purely metal or purely thrash that they stayed in one lane. I feel like their lyrics evolved, their sound evolved. I actually like the lyrics of the new album better than many, many of their albums. They would always return to their hard roots but allowed some breath and evolution. At the same time, I feel like since the Black Album, they've been searching 
for their next thing. And you hear it on load and reload. You hear it in a great way on uh, Saint Anger and Death Magnetic. And it and while that's given them the impetus to expand their sound and explore and everything, I I'm not sure that their evolution has quite yet taken them to an organic place in terms of here's all of we done. Like, like I talked before about the inaugural album, how the Red Hot Chili Peppers album before the recent one, to me, it's like so many bands are putting albums out now have been around for a while. It's that what I call inaugural album where, where it's like we're looking back on our whole career and we're not picking one era that we loved or that you loved. We're doing it all and putting it together which is a lot what Rex's new album uh, is going to be, which I'm going to put out some singles very soon and the album's coming out shortly after that. It is everything Rex has ever done but put together. You know, I just like that feel. Uh, and again, I, I think the the closest they came to getting to that kind of inaugural let's do everything and put it together was Saint mm-hmm. Anger. And people overlook that because they had such an issue with the change in production, you know. And yeah, Bob Rock was the bass player and whatever. Did a fine job, though. He produced it as well. Robert Trujillo would come on after that. And like I said, has been the longest serving bass player. Uh, I just want to make sure I mention that. I don't know why I threw that in. But uh, I think you all need to revisit St. Anger. Uh, Yes, they're one of the greatest metal bands, but also one of the greatest bands of all time. And one of the most commercially successful bands in any genre of all time. Uh, They have influenced pretty much all subsequent metal bands. I think all subsequent metal bands and other bands from other genres, absolutely. Now let's get to my big conclusion, which is they are the true mega true, only true mega true metal band. What do I mean by that? Taking a very vocal sip. Mm -hmm. That was me sipping. I'm not saying that they're the only great metal band. Of course I'm not. So there are dozens of other amazingly great epic metal bands. Right. Spanning every single era from the 60s on to today, frankly, even today. Uh, And many have had huge successes. I mean, you, you, yes, you know, you talk about Megadeth or you talk about Tool or you talk about Iron Maiden, you talk about a lot of the hair metal bands, you talk about, of course, Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath or ACDC, depending on how you categorize them and all of that. Uh, you know, that's not what that subtitle means. And I'm not, I'm not right. I'm not saying they're the only successful hard band, metal bands that might not have been considered metal or aren't today considered metal. There've been quite a few of those super successful bands. But here's what I am saying. And before I say that, I'm going to say this. I say they're the only truly mega, truly metal band. Here are the other contenders in my mind. And that's it. Led Zeppelin, Guns N' Roses, and ACDC. Why do they, you know, not hold up to Metallica as far as that title? Here's why. To me, Led Zeppelin was metal, but is now really a hard blues rock. And the way metal was redefined, I don't think you can put them in the same category of music anymore. Again, music's not a genre, but this is fun. And their career was too short. So even though they dominated the world you know, they dominated for a very short period. Uh, Guns N' Roses, yeah, they're pretty much metal. You know, they definitely classify as hard, but in in a different way. Uh, But again, their career was also very short and they were at the top of the world for a very short amount of time, but they were at the top. Uh, But they're also pretty inconsistent, certainly after this. 
So I just don't think they quite uh, live up to Metallica. And then finally, ACDC, which to me are the closest contenders. Why? They've been around a super long time. They've consistently released new material. They have conquered the world. But I'm not sure I would call them metal. Hard rock, maybe super hard rock. There might be a few things they do that, to me, veer into what we know of as metal today. But that's the reason why I'm kind of giving them a close second and saying that no other truly hard metal band has had anywhere near the success in terms of charts and longevity and artistry all put together as Metallica has. And that's what that subtitle means, and that's what I'm claiming and I would love to hear whether you agree or disagree. But first, getting to the final part of this episode and every episode, which is the featured song. I'm not a metal dude as far as what I play, although I have performed and co-written uh, quite a few metal songs. Uh, Metallica has influenced me in two ways. One, they are the standard bearer for being both hard and accessible. And anytime I've ever done a hard song, like where it is metal metal or veering towards that, I'm already I'm already leaning towards accessibility and pop. So you put those two things together and it's it's Metallica showing me that that's something you could do and still have that integrity of hardness, I guess you can say. Uh, the second reason they've influenced me is that it's possible to sing in a hardcore style without having a super high voice. I, I love freaking tenors and all that, and I, but I'm not. I'm a baritoner. I don't think I will ever be a tenor. Uh, my vocal range is better now than it's ever been. But at the same time, uh, I can't reach the heights that a lot of those, you know, screaming metal dudes can. And I love listening to it. But but for somebody like, you know, Hetfield to come along and say, I'm going to be just a freaking awesome baritone. I don't know what his range is. He could be a baritoner uh, and still make kick-ass metal was really encouraging to me. And I have done metal before, like I said. <laughs> Uh, a whole bunch with the band I mentioned before, Ape Cafe, uh, Obsequious Bones is a, is a song. Uh, I have them on Rec's YouTube page, Rec, at, Rec, at Rec Music NYC or at Rec Band NYC. I don't know. The link is is always there. Go there because you'll hear all of the old Ape Cafe stuff and look up Obsequious Bones, Ape Cafe. Just search for it. You'll find it. Uh, also my own songs that were, that were very metal or metal influence, water baby, xylophone ways, uh, your sister, uh, I'm gone. Some things happen. Beautiful love, lock load, love, little white lies, X miss brave the world. No way out for me. Don't say you don't three more minutes. Uh, you know, I've shared a lot of these and you can find them all on Bandcamp. You can find them all streaming. You can find them all on the YouTube page, uh, for rec. And they're, yeah, they're all on my website, nickdomadio.com. Go to Music Discography and you'll find them all. But, you know, mostly my hardness came more from the grunge and post-punk and all of that. Um, I have a very punky aesthetic in a lot of what I do. And and grunge has creeped up there, especially it's a new song I'm putting out soon called uh, Porch Step, which sounds a lot like that. But that said, the featured song is from Parts and Labor, Rex album, Rex debut album. It's called Stop It. One of the harder songs I've done. It's a fast song, and it's a great example of the Metallica influence. Even lyrically, I believe it is. I mean, it's got my spin on it and other stuff, but I think you'll hear that influence. Please let me know if you do. Uh, Which, by the way, uh, are you a Metallica fan? 
If you're not, why are you here? But if so, why, which kind are you? A fan of their early hardcore thrash albums and nothing else? Are you a fan because of Metallica, the Black Album? Are you a convert? Or are you a diehard follower who year after year looks forward to new stuff that they put out? How do you think they've held up after 11 albums of original music? I'd love to know that. I'd love to know what do you think of the song that's coming up in a few seconds. I'd love to know what you think of my conclusion and anything else because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you so much for listening and watching and uh, get ready for a celebration next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.